0: p is proud to bring you untold stories in celebration of Pride Month. Learn more about why visibility of LGBTQ people is so important in p new film, They Will See You, at greatbigstory.com. I kind of love the fact that the word iconic and icon have become, you know, so much a part of the vernacular now that they're used to describe almost anything that's great. You know, it's like if that went well, you know, this sandwich is iconic, you know, <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> But um, we are now using Iconic the way that that Andy Warhol used Famous.
1: Hey there, beautiful people. Welcome to Entertainment Weekly's Untold Stories, Pride Edition. I'm your host, entertainment journalist and film critic, Travel Anderson, but you can call me Beyonce if you'd like. I'll accept that as well. This is our fourth and final episode, and today we'll be talking about some great authors, activists, and thinkers, plus talking about what words like icon and legend really mean. Coming up, writer Alexander Chi talks about the late poet Justin Chen, and author and professor Karen Tongson stops by to give us a little scholarly context. But first, EW writer Nick Romano spoke with writer, director, and playwright Leslie Hedlund about the iconic Fran Lebowitz.
2: And a quick note, all of these interviews were conducted remotely in June. I am here with the fiercely talented Leslie Headland. If you do not know who Leslie is, first of all, how dare you? She is the director of the egregiously underrated movie Bachelorette. She's the creator of Netflix's Russian Doll. She's a playwright, a showrunner, and she is currently developing her own Star Wars TV show that, as I gather, we can't really talk about under penalty of Baby Yoda for script. Does that
0: that sound (laughs) about right? (laughs) I think that is. Uh, Baby Yoda is now a unit of measurement, I believe. So I think that's right.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here and happy Pride Month. Uh,
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Leslie, who is the icon that we will be talking about today?
0: We're going to be talking about friendly blitz
2: which i adore. Oh my god, did you see the New Yorker profile or not profile but the Q&A that came out with her recently? With
0: the her talking about <laughs> quarantine?
2: Yes. yes. Oh my god, the fury, <laughs> the fury with which she describes peeling her own cucumbers is iconic.
0: <laughs> that was <laughs> And i do think that like as you were doing your intro. I mean, she really is an icon. Like in the true sense of the, you know, I kind of love the fact that the word iconic and icon have become, you know, so much a part of the vernacular now that they're used to describe almost anything that's great. You know, it's like if that went well, you know, this sandwich is iconic, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but um, we are now using iconic the way that that Andy Warhol used famous, you know, like it's now like this is just this thing that everybody can be everybody is. Um, I do think Fran is from an era where, where, you know, icons probably, you know, you you could actually become an icon. Like that was actually something that could happen. Um, And it was a a word that would probably be reserved for people like her in the sense that um, there just isn't anything. There isn't anything like the work that she had put out at the time when she was still writing. Um, There's absolutely nothing like her, um, her almost stream of, consciousness rants you know like I I think the way that she talks a lot about in her interviews the difference between writing and talking and that you know she she hates writing but she loves talking and as soon as she found out she could get paid for that (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I felt so similarly um, about uh, making that transition from a precocious child who everyone told to shut up to (laughs) To a person that everyone was like, "Oh, we'll pay you to say that." Actually, we we would we'll 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 give you good m- money to to write that down. And yeah, so she really is she really is like an icon in the old fashioned or traditional sense of that word.
2: Yeah, and I mean, just what you're talking about, about the difference between writing and talking, the way that Fran thinks of it. You know, as someone who writes and then also has to write dialogue, has that, as her perspective, sort of influenced the way that you approach that?
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, like, I mean, I feel like I should, I want to answer your questions, but I feel like I should start with something that I found recently, um, being home with my parents. Um, I was going through a lot of my old stuff, and I found... um, a uh, I think it's some sort of like end of school speech that I made when I was in fifth or sixth grade Um, and I just want to read it to you so that you can understand that as a tiny 12 year old who you know because when you're 12 it's interesting I was quick side note I was talking to my therapist and not to brag but I'm in therapy and uh, (laughs) and my therapist was saying that you know it's his view that parents recognize their children as gay before the children recognize themselves as gay. You know, like and that um they don't know what it is and especially being brought up in a family that was very um religious and uh I was given kind of these two separate pieces of information which was that uh at church and at youth group and at retreats I was told that gay people were uh, going to hell, they were wrong, they were um perverted they um, basically were unloved and unaccepted by uh the Lord Jesus Christ um but then i and and my parents, I think by extension by being my parents that sent me on these things, agreed with that statement. So I assumed that was how they felt as well. And yet they exposed me to Fran Lebowitz when apparently I was 11 or 12 years old. So this is my book report. It's very short. It goes, My fellow comrades, I thank you for coming to our end of the school year celebration. I'd also like to thank the teachers for making this year an enjoyable one. While we're on the subject of teachers, I can remember one of the teachers saying that one class was not writing up to its potential. Now, we must remember the wise words of Fran Leibowitz: that if your guidance counselor were working up to his potential, he wouldn't still be in an elementary school. I'd now like to thank all the people who helped organize the student-teacher brunch. We all won't forget how one child wore sunglasses to brunch. Back to Leibowitz, folks. Wearing dark glasses at the breakfast table is socially acceptable only if you are legally blind or partaking of your morning meal out of doors during a total eclipse of the sun. We, was this child blind and we didn't know? That's my, my personal question. Lastly, I would like to say that this is one of my best years so far. I hope you will treasure it as much as I do. Our last quote is from, you guessed it, your favorite, Fram Leibowitz. Remember that as a teenager, you are at the last stage in your life that when you will be happy to hear that the phone is for you, and the uh, it says super job and well presented, 100% <laughs> from my teenager. <laughs> so I guess I also <laughs> read it out loud. That's the other funny part of that. So it's a little bit of writing and a little bit of talking in 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 terms of of your question, but which I'm happy to get back to. But I forgot to read that at the top to say when I was asked this question in anticipation of the podcast, the first thing I thought about was how much I loved reading her. You know, I didn't read Metropolitan Life and and um, Social Studies because I was too young. But when I was in middle school, in the beginning of high school, I did read that Fran Lebowitz reader that came out like in the mid 90s. She kind of like resurfaced during the Not resurfaced, but she kind of like, that was kind of when she was making the rounds for that. She'd written a children's book. like She kind of like came back in the mid nineties to kind of like comment on everything that was going on as she usually does. And I think that was around what my uh, introduction to her was. And I thought it was so interesting that my parents who were giving me this information via being brought up Catholic and Christian, were also introducing me on a regular basis to funny women, to women like her, um, to Dorothy Parker, to Elaine May, to Madeline Kahn, like, they they over and over again would point out these these female icons, you know. Um, and Fran was interesting because she was this person that, you know, you very much right away recognize her as gay, you know, as, you know, like, I mean, I don't know if that's offensive to say, but, you know, when I saw her and saw what she looked like, you know, it really was my, you know, ring of keys moment of like, oh my God, like, are you saying I could wear men's you know men's style jackets and like denim jeans and like cool cowboy like you know it just i was so preoccupied with looking and presenting straight without even knowing it that just her existence and her appearance was something that was so groundbreaking to me but you know i fell in love with her words first but then to see her and to see the way she took up space it was almost uh, you know, it was so invigorating, but it was also shocking and scary to me, you know, like I thought, oh my God, you know, wow. I'm I'm a little worried that, uh, my concern always was that I was going to grow up to be like a well-adjusted lesbian. And, uh, <laughs> I'm so terrified that that was going to be the case. And, you know, here we are, um, all these years later and I guess it happened, but, um, but Yeah. Sorry, you asked me an actual question, which I should answer.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm kind of now obsessed by this idea of a 12-year-old Leibowitz fan. (laughs) When
0: I think about little Leslie loving her so much, it's so clear how obvious she shows up in all of my work, you know? I mean, um, uh, obviously in Russian Doll. Uh, which was co created by Natasha Lyonne and um, really the the brainchild of Natasha Leone, so much of it is of course very Natasha. However, I think that a lot of the the mannerisms that she has in that show and a lot of the the dialogue that I was able to write for her and the the type of New York and the type of commentary that we were making on gentrification and on new air culture. All of that is just drenched with friendly blitz like, you know, the like any of those jokes that she says and there could could be legalist jokes like
3: i mean i smoke what like two packs a day i have the internal organs of a man twice my age if i make it to my low
0: 70s i'll be shocked the fact that nadia is a very confirmed smoker you know like that we didn't we didn't tamp that down i mean uh you know when she walks into the bar and says it smells like george Clinton after a week-long bender in here people don't talk that way like that's it's, just a, it's like that's not a joke someone says like that's a joke fran lebowitz says like that's a joke that you read um, that you don't even realize is a joke because it's so dry and it's so, it's so on point and it's referencing something that you didn't even know you knew, <laughs> you, know, like, you know, she's really forcing you. And every time she tells you a joke to, to remember that you remember something like remember you have the knowledge of this thing. Like, um, uh, don't forget that. Like while I'm, I'm telling you this, this joke.
2: For you, when you sort of think about the first time that you read something by Leibovitz, do you now have a different sort of assessment of her work in this even newer, modern lens? I do,
0: yeah. Fran is someone that I think is incredibly pithy, but but is pithy within context. I think there's a reason she doesn't own a phone and she isn't on social media. You know, like, I just don't... I think it's part of her um, eccentricities, but I also think that that's kind of the way you know that she is in terms of how she expresses her thoughts and her feelings and um and what she sees in the world you know like she's always been someone that is so confident in her ability to observe that it's almost offensive <laughs> <laughs> if that makes sense like like it she's so confident in the way that she says I'm looking at this thing and this is what it looks like that I think for a generation, that's all about editing tweets and filters for posts. There's nothing wrong with that. I just think it's a different way of observing life than someone like Fran uh, or some, the style of someone like Fran and Fran specifically doesn't necessarily mold into. But what I do love about Fran is how she will say how wrong she was, you know, when she screams about how wrong she was about Trump. You know, she said, I spent a whole year, you know, going everywhere, telling everyone that there was no way this guy was going to win, you know, and he then she attributes that to uh, not watching reality television.
3: I never saw the television show that he had. But even if I had seen it, I don't think it would ever have occurred to me. That people thought it was real. I mean, people in New York didn't even think he was a real estate developer. I mean, he he was literally beneath contempt. No one paid any attention to him at all. People asked me, you know, have you ever met him? I couldn't even remember. You know, I, I mean, who would pay attention to this guy?
0: You know, she doesn't walk it back. She doesn't pretend that's not what she meant. She says, I was wrong. I was completely wrong and I completely misjudged it. But the confidence with which she can reflect back what she's saying, I think, is something that's both wildly refreshing for people that consume their news the way that we do and consume their content the way that we do. But I also think it's a delivery service that we're not used to. (laughs) (laughs) The delivery service of Fran and the way that she speaks is not some, I think, I think she may be an acquired taste at this point for people, Mm. but to me, she is one if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is there a particular uh, Fran moment that still sticks with you and that you find so iconic?
0: Yes, I do. I had forgotten she'd written this article on race in 1997 in, um, in Vanity Fair. I'll put it in context, which is that um, she's talking about how um, when white people... Contemplate the topic of race, and she says it is only a topic for white people. By the way, (laughs) like um, their kind of go-to is like, how would it be if I were black? Because it's a very American kind of concept of like, if you want to express empathy, then you walk a mile in those man's shoes, you know. But that's kind of part of the problem, and this is why, and so on and so forth. And the interviewer asks her like. Well, what's part, what's the solution which i think a lot of people are asking right now and this is what her response is she says the way to approach it i think is not to ask what would it be like to be black but to seriously consider what it is like to be white that's something white people almost never think about and what it is like to be white is not to say we have to level the playing field but to acknowledge that not only do white people own the playing field, but they have so designated this plot of land as a playing field to begin with. White people are the playing field. The advantage of being white is so extreme, so overwhelming, so immense that to use the word advantage at all is misleading since it implies a kind of parody that simply does not exist. And for me that, you know, rereading that, I thought uh it was a nice little nugget to put into um my brain at this particular moment because it's true. Yeah. I don't sit and think about my contribution to um my racism, my contribution to white, you know, white supremacy, whiteness, you know, any of those kinds of things. I I only kind of go like I want, you know, I only push it outside myself. And, you know, that's 1997. And while I might be centuries late to the conversation or the contemplation, some of my heroes have been asking themselves that question for, you know, a while.
2: Mm. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I find really interesting about Fran, because you know, so many people kind of gravitate towards her words and her perspective, but she never considered herself to be an activist or like a feminist icon or anything like that, right?
0: I don't think she would. She said many things that I think um, would make her, would kind of put her in an activist category, but to frame their common sense. Do you know what I mean? Like, she's like, <laughs> You know, when she was making the rounds, you know, during, uh, you know, as the pundit, you know, like as a talking head during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, you know, like, you know, to her, she's like, I'm not, this isn't brain surgery here, guys. It's very simple, you know, to her. And so um, I don't think, I think she resists. She, she well, listen, I don't want to speak for her, but but possibly we put her in that category because she speaks so bluntly about what she believes to be so clearly oppression versus marginalization you know like what is so clearly wrong versus what is right and so she does seem like you know and i don't know her personally but she does seem like someone who wants to enact change but would probably resist the label of feminist activist you know uh any of those things most likely only because she's issued so many labels for herself um uh over the years. But mm. I don't know. I mean, do you agree with that or, or perhaps I'm misrepresenting it?
2: No, I think I, I think I would absolutely agree with that. You know, I I think she never I always get the sense that she never wanted to hold herself on any sort of pedestal because I feel like as critical as she was of the world around her, she was also critical of herself in a lot of ways. I feel like she knew herself in ways that I think is really unique for a lot of people, a lot of writers, a lot of thinkers. And it's something we don't always get today.
0: I think that's true. And I think that that's especially true for LGBTQ people because a lot of times our, you know, fear of marginalization will lead us to uh, kind of try to assimilate some sort of heteronormative culture. You know, like... Um, Uh, you know, I would say that my early work, especially, you know, is really kind of like leaning into this, like, super street girl, you know, mentality. And I think a lot of the reason that was the case was because I found it to be absurd. Fran has a very famous, um, quote about, you know, why are, why are gay people fighting for marriage? I mean, do I think gay marriage is progress? Are you kidding me? Like, this was one of the good things about being gay. Like, I mean, I am stunned that the two greatest desires, apparently, of people involved in gay rights movements is gay marriage and gays in the military. Really? (laughs) Usually a fight for freedom is a fight for freedom. This is like the opposite. I mean, people used to pretend to be gay to get out of going in the army you know, now I disagree with that. I'm married. I love being married. I, I do believe it's my inalienable right as a citizen of this country to be able to marry my wife. But I... Don't think that that means that I can't also see Fran's point when she says that. <laughs> she's not making fun of people who want to get married or, or, or uh, you know, LGBTQ people who want to you know, serve this country. I think what she's making fun of is the institutions of this country and how they continually marginalize and oppress people to the point where they're dying to get in. I, as much as I revere her, I think I'm just too much of a, of a, of a softy to really follow in her footsteps is the truth. You know, like I quit smoking, which I'm super ashamed of, you know, like, and, um, you know, I got married, I settled down, you know, like I said, I was terrified of being a well-adjusted lesbian and here I am, you know, drinking my eight glasses of water a day. It's, it's just a nightmare, but, uh, I am doing the things that I thought would have been impossible to do if I came out. And that's the truth. Mm. Like, I, I am doing the things that I thought, well, if I come out, you know, I'm, I'm never gonna work. Yeah, Hollywood doesn't want to hire women. They especially don't want to hire gay women. <laughs> like, it's like there was this real feeling when I first put it out, that like, if you're not a sexually viable object, I'm so afraid I'm not gonna get hired, you know? So when I see a woman like Fran, I get scared. I get like, oh my God, like it, it's proving all of my anxieties incorrect. You know, <laughs> like, it's proving all of those fears and all of those like heteronormative ideas to be wrong, you know? So it's, it's really important that visibility and yet it's, it's, it's also, it, it's terrifying yeah. to even people that uh, identify that way. I think it's scary.
1: If you want more of Leslie's brilliance you can watch the first season of Russian Dog on Netflix and hopefully one day soon we'll see what she's done in the world of Star Wars as well. We wanted to hear Leslie speak about Fran in her own words but we also as always want to provide you some context. Here with a look at how queer writers and thinkers have helped shape our world is author and professor Karen Tongson.
3: I'm Karen Tongson. I'm a writer, and I'm the chair of gender and sexuality studies at USC and the co-host of the podcast, Waiting to Exhale. Fran Leibovitz is a raconteur, a lost artist of wit, the kind we've had in queer culture since Oscar Wilde, really, in the 1890s. And uh, we can also think of other figures like Quentin Crisp. And Fran Leibovitz stands out as a female figure who is seen as this kind of great commenter, uh, great Uh, analyst of contemporary American culture and has been doing so since the 70s and into the 80s.
0: Here's the problem of being ahead of your time. By the time everyone gets around to it, you're bored.
3: So, (laughs) you know. Even though Fran Leibovitz's aversion to technology Uh, using smartphones, the internet, those things seem like a kind of Luddite stance to take. It doesn't mean that she doesn't continue to have her finger on the pulse of contemporary culture, human interaction, and what it means to be especially a New Yorker. Fran Leibovitz is an iconic New York figure. So I think that people would have encountered her mostly In her journalism, her her pieces for The New Yorker, her interviews, uh, certain times that people drag her out onto talk shows. Uh, But also I think that, you know, the thing about a cultural critic existing in the world like Fran Leibovitz is you can't really pin down where you've seen or encountered that person, right? You've seen her as a talking head in a range of different documentaries uh you know that she's written books but that's not really where the focus is right if the focus is on the personality the image the kind of stark attire right like she's got a look so in much the same way that people used to talk about wild swanning around in london in the 1890s that's that's how i think of fran leibovitz is a direct descendant of that kind of presence in the world I think that there's something very dandyical about Fran Leibovitz's look, like classic dandy. I actually was at a wedding with Fran Leibovitz once, and I remember just kind of standing to the side of the dance floor watching her sort of almost limbo in what looked like a blousy, piratey shirt. It looks very, you know, kind of uh, decadent, like a kind of uh, an esthetes outfit uh, from an, another time, another period, but, a, you know, like a kind of fitted She was wearing at that wedding a sort of fitted velvet suit, from what I recall. Um, Everything was nicely tailored, but it had that sort of um, romantic look to it. Uh, People in the 80s would call it new romantic, uh, but I think that now it just sort of reads as out of time in its own way, Uh, but very classic as well. The other thing about Fran's look is that she's very androgynous, or there's something... About it that resides in that space of androgyny and fantasy. And that stands also in complement to her cultural commentary, which is very much about how people who exist beyond the regimes of normalcy live, uh, experience life, and Work. I, I mean, I think that you know one of the things that she writes about, and that you'll know immediately uh, about Fran Leibovitz, You'll you'll read her queerness immediately in the way she critiques normalcy, in the way she critiques things like marriage, in the way that she um, has a different understanding of what whiteness means and what it is, and that that it is the object to be analyzed and not the the thing that analyzes others. Right. So the almost the the different kinds of inversion, the different angles that Fran Leibovitz takes as a cultural critic to certain topics is part of how you read queerness into her, even if she doesn't constantly assert her sexuality or, you know, make those statements. It's a combination of that look that is out of time, that is beyond the spheres of what we're used to seeing visually and uh, the way of understanding the world that is beyond our sense of every day i think it's really difficult to sort through the you know kind of plethora of voices that you have on Twitter, right? So there are a lot of people, there are a lot of wits in this world or people trying to uh, use their wit and in- brandish their wit in various ways. But most of it is mediated. Most of it is online. Most of it doesn't have that same level of presence and personality that you associate with the Fran Leibovitzes, with the Quentin Crisp, with the Gorva Vidal's, with, you know, all of these Figures that really kind of cut through whatever scene they're in. And I think that even though, I don't know, we could turn to certain wits like, you know, somebody like Jabuki on Twitter, <laughs> right, who um, has incisive cultural observations, they may be as witty and incisive and fascinating in their cultural critique but we just don't get to see them moving around in the world in the same way as we've seen figures like Fran Leibovitz. So I think that's becoming increasingly more difficult. I think that, you know, also people are vying for attention on so many different platforms. So the kind of all aroundness that Leibovitz embodies, that presence, the physicality, the rapier wit is not easy to kind of coalesce into one platform or another. Like you're either doing like a TikTok video and you're really smart at doing it, or you're like a Sarah Cooper who's doing tremendous things with lip syncing on multiple platforms, but you don't, you don't have that same level of the fullness of presence, that liveness that, you know, that many of us get with a figure like Leibovitz, even if we only saw her on TV. So I do think that I, I, there is something about the like, contemporary moment that, like, doesn't afford the same kinds of charisma and attachments that we have to certain personalities that you know pre digital eras sort of preserved for us. I think that one of the things that makes Russian Doll so unique and Natasha Leone's. Character so unique is that it does give us that conduit, that window to a New York of a different time that includes Fran Leibovitz. The fact that Leslie pays homage to her through Natasha Leone's character in in Russian Doll becomes a way of signaling that we've lost the art of that kind of aserbiquet, that kind of. Um, Access to these cultural references—a kind of middle to highbrow cultural reference that a raunchy joke can be made out of, like George Plimpton or somebody like that—that—that—that um, that, 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 you know—it's—it's that it's very much registering again like a kind of out of timeness, a different sense of time. Uh, and I think that that's part of what makes somebody like Fran Leibovitz timeless, is precisely, you know. This, this, this kind of sticking and makes and that makes Russian doll so compelling is that it's, a, it's something contemporary, but it also seems like it could exist in some other parallel temporal universe, you know. If you're inspired to encounter more Fran Leibovitz, these are the places you really need to turn to. The first step is to read her recent interview in The New Yorker about life in quarantine and her sort of obstinance about that. And I think that, you know, obviously, you know, what's really exciting is that, um, you know, we can look to it and just see all of those sparkling elements of what makes Frank Leibovitz so cool to so many people who, you know, grew up. Um, With her presence on TV more more readily in the eighties and nineties, the other thing is like her essay on race in Vanity Fair in nineteen ninety seven. I think that that's like her journalism. I just find like a compendium of her journalism, and just like you can find it so easily on the internet now. Uh, Like and look at how like incisive these takes are, how thoughtful and how deep. Fran Leibovitz's takes are compared to the kind of quick take culture that we leave, live in now. There's deep criticism and reflection in them, not just a position, right? So I think that so much of what we read, the quick takes that we read, are just about like positioning oneself. And instead, uh, especially in her analysis of race, it's about understanding how it's not about positioning oneself, it's about a certain level of self-reflection that can open to a better understanding of the world. Among the best places to get to know Fran Leibovitz is bar none, the different interviews she still gives quite regularly. There's one recently in the believer as well as the one in the New Yorker that, uh, you know, is so has been so compelling to everyone post quarantine. I think that the main criticism friendly Leibovitz's approach just seems to be people who dismiss it as simply contrarian or an affectation, you know, a pose in some way. It's like just the expression of a stylist. People don't really give enough credit to the depth of critical thinking and analysis in all of her cultural work. And I think that, you know, I think that people realize that belatedly about other figures like, you know, like Quentin Crisp. People just thought, in many respects, he was a personality, a provocateur. And I think that some people can think that about Fran Leibovitz as well. But um, there's tremendous, tremendous um, depth, conceptual depth to every joke that's cracked and to every insight uh, in her analysis of culture.
1: Now, as we've made this podcast, we've been delighted to have our subjects define for themselves who is an icon or a legend in queer entertainment history and what that means. We also spoke with Karen about how a queer star is actually born.
3: First, just, you know, around the allure of talking about contemporary queer figures instead of like deeply historical ones, I think that in many respects, a lot of us have come to a reckoning with how maybe people we idolized from history or from a more distant past were not as glorious and unproblematic as they seemed to us when we first like you know connected with them as young people right i think that there are the effects call it cancel culture or just call it just like a deeper longer encounter with the world and things to know that you know they're You know, nobody comes to us, even the people we admire, even the figures we admire, with a sense of purity and absolute, you know, untouchable uh, goodness, right? So I think that that's part of why it, it feels almost safer to talk about people who are more contemporary. It feels closer to us to be able to rely on that person to be a kind of consistent force of possibility in, in in the contemporary moment, but it was even though somebody like Justin Chin passed too soon. But in terms of the function of, if we want to think about the function of poetry to queer worlds and to the contemporary moment, part of what queerness is is imagining forms, worlds, ways of saying things that exist beyond what already is available. And poetry and the kind of license to dream and experiment and to express oneself with a kind of honesty and rawness is something that I think queer culture has always needed, right? Uh, But that feels deeply necessary now, especially when, you know, putting things into essays, complete sentences, a kind of coherent treatise isn't always an option. Sometimes, you know, what the urgency of what we need to say seeks a different form. And especially in these political moments, in this kind of global moment, um, we need that. We need that capacity to imagine different forms, different containers for our feelings and the urgency of our desires. One of the things about Justin Chin is that he doesn't just use poetry. One of the things that's remarkable about his career is that he, you know, experiments with the crossing of different genres, uh, like Arzamora landmark um, and, you know, even Alexander himself. There's a kind of crossing of different genres from poetry into prose, into the essay form. Uh, And I think that, you know, uh, among that circle of folks too, and somebody also working in a different medium now, television, Ali Liebigat is somebody who's an interesting figure to explore, to read in that way, whether or not it's, you know, their book of dinosaur poems, memoirist essays, um, uh, or the work that they've done uh, as a TV writer, you know, it's important to see how we have to use all the genres available to us to explore different aspects of the queer experience.
4: Do you have any enemies? Are you anyone's enemy? What is your feeling of revenge? Given the opportunity without reprisals, will you? Is vengeance mine or yours? What is your feeling about karma? Karma chameleon, you come and go? Eye for an eye or turn the other cheek? Cheek to cheek or tip for tap? Measure for measure or give an inch? Take the mile or stand your ground? Is forgiveness really divine? Can you forgive someone who doesn't believe he has wronged you? Can you forgive someone who hasn't asked for forgiveness?
3: My very first encounter with Justin Chin was at a reading where he was reading from his book, Harmless Medicine. And I was so captivated by the way he read that poetry that, you know, it, it, it made me want to immediately buy all of his books, right? So I think that that was the thing about being in that kind of literary scene in the 90s early 2000s particularly the kind of queer asian american scene so many people interacted with each other uh and and justin you know he was a quiet figure when he was not reading on stage or he seemed sort of like a little less in the center of the kind of social scene but when he took to the stage and read these works that had raunch and heart and rawness and tremendous insight In that you couldn't help but just be completely captivated by it. And so, um, you know, uh, and one of the things, too, that's super striking is, like, sometimes you see someone who's a tremendous performer, especially a writer who's a great performer, but when you see the work on the page, it's not as riveting. That's definitely not the case with Justin Chin's work. In fact, it unlocks an entirely different dimension to the craft that went into his poetry, into his nonfiction, fiction fiction. The
4: losses that accumulate, each one a fire nailed to a cross, soon to be ash, dumped out and cut into lines on a mirror, ready to snort. Here's a 20 rolled up just so. Forgive the nosebleed, not the heart. Good morning, Sodom, good morning, Gomorrah. Weather all grit and grime. Traffic at the top of the hour, just grit your carpool teeth and merge.
3: Whereas it's more comfortable sometimes for us to think about... On the scale of icons, on the scale of celebrity, on the scale of what is grand. I also think it's important for us to recognize and understand the smaller, more intimate scales of being queer in the world and being in community. And that's who Justin Chin is, is somebody who maybe cannot be elevated to the status of celebrity because he isn't as widely known or not as widely read, but the impact this person had on an entire like writerly generation um, that extends beyond Asian American writers, queer Asian American writers who are creative writers, but also who are critics, who are thinkers, who work in media, who work in performance and in other aspects of the arts, uh, is also something to register. That kind of the... The work at the ground level, the, the, the work that seeps into who we are and into our daily lives and into, you know, um, how we move through the world as people, as people who are woven together in a community is, is just as important as thinking about those folks who stand out, those folks who, you know, whose figures you can't turn away from. And so, you know, I think that the range that we have here between Fran Bevitz and Justin Chin gives us that sense of range from, you know, the kind of iconoclastic, the iconic, the celebrity to, you know, the person, the, the hub, the heart of a community. Um, and, you know, so many of these people we've lost too soon, we're continuing to lose those people. So... Um, it's, it's a wonderful testament to the scale of queer life from grandeur to intimacy.
1: Thank you so much, Karen. If you want more of her excellence, you can check out her book, Why Karen Carpenter Matters, wherever books are sold. We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, author Alexander Chi speaks about his friend, the late poet Justin Chin.
3: For marginalized people everywhere, visibility is vital. Dive into why LGBTQ representation is so important and meet inspirational people behind the movement in P&G's new film, They Will See You. From LGBTQ activists and community members to young
0: people searching for their place in the world, every voice is valid and deserves to be heard. During Pride Month, join us as we celebrate their stories at greatbigstory.com.
1: Welcome back to Untold Stories, Pride Edition. This has been a fascinating journey through the past, present, and future of queer media. To finish out our series, EW Digital Director Shana Naomi Krocmo spoke with novelist and essayist Alexander Chi about the late poet Justin Chen. And there's some swearing ahead, so just a heads up.
4: I wanted to talk about Justin Chin because when we talk about legends, I think there's people we turn to almost too easily. I could talk about Armistead Maupin or Quentin Crisp, Colette, Gore Vidal, and I love them all. But I also feel like I want to celebrate more than the people everyone already knows about. And so I think of how, as well, so often people we call our legends are white because the earlier queer writers who were able to be defiant in the face of censorship were people who had some sort of white privilege and class privilege. And most of my queer Asian writing forebears, for example, and there just aren't that many of us, are unfamous to most people. Kitty Swee, Willis Kim, and Justin Shin, for example. Justin published seven books of poetry, fiction, and memoir before he gave up writing and died too young. I used to say that I didn't know why he gave up and that I thought maybe it was just because nobody paid him the attention he truly deserved. And finally, a friend of mine told me as much that he had written to her extensively about it. When he died, he was an EMT. He hadn't been writing for several years. And it just pierces me to the heart that he left us that way. When I met him, he was this cute, uh, tattooed queer punk Asian-American poet who was at the Outright Conference in San Francisco, um, which was a conference that I had helped organize And it was the first lesbian and gay, bisexual, trans national writing conference in the U.S. of its kind, organized by uh, Outlook magazine, where I was an intern at the time. I was just out of college. I was in my early 20s. Um, I published just a couple of things, like a a story in an anthology, a couple of poems and zines. I had these ambitions, uh, literary ambitions, but I was also pretty aware of not seeing queer Asian writers besides uh, Mishima, who the iconography of Mishima is so intense and so specific and feels all, felt to me at the time like it was from another era as well as another culture. Whereas when I met Justin, he and I were like literally eye level to each other. He went on to publish seven books before he died. Uh, an eighth book came out after his death, a posthumous collection of his work. You know, he wrote uh, poetry, he wrote memoir, he wrote uh, short stories. He had a collection of short stories called 98 Wounds that I spent some time with yesterday again. There's this really kind of electric sexuality in his work, that I like quite a bit, as well as a commitment to th- the ordinary and to the miserable, even, to frustration. Um, I think, you know, I think of something that I had to learn for myself about writing from my own experience, which is that I had all these blind spots that came to me from my family. And, and so, for example, my father was a Korean immigrant. He had this way of dealing with prejudice, which was to never ever acknowledge it directly, to act as if it never had happened, it couldn't possibly have affected him. And so it made it very difficult for me to write about the same, even though I very much wanted to, because it felt like I was betraying him to do that. Like I had somehow you know, abandoned the mission as it were. And so even though uh, Justin and I weren't that much in touch over the years, just his existence meant so much to me. And so his death uh, was something that I that I took hard in a strange way because I was aware that I had always, I'd always hoped that I'd have more time with him. I realized that I had to create more opportunities than uh, I had in the past when Justin died. And so I created a fellowship in his name at Lambda. I would say... In terms of this idea of him as a legend, the legend of him in the Asian American writers community is of this like intensely generous and loving man who gave so much as a teacher and a writer on the page. Uh, he wrote a lot about addiction. He wrote a lot about safer sex anxieties, HIV. Um, he was a winner of the Tom Gunn Award in 2007 and you know spent most of his uh, adult life, I would say, in San Francisco. You know, I think Mongrel is a book that I would, if people don't know about him, that I would send them to. Also, 98 Wounds, the collection of short stories. Gutted is the one he won uh, the Tom Gunn Award for, a Book of Poetry. Um, those are great places to find him. Or pick up his selected works, which came out in 2016. And it's it's a beautiful book because it contains uh, short memories of him by all these different writers like Michelle T and Arzamora Lindmark, among others. And it contains excerpts from all of his seven books. And, uh, and it, it's a nice introduction to him as well.
0: Is there one poem or story or collection of his that you feel like most speaks to you or that you want to talk about in more detail?
4: I think, you know, for me, probably um, 98 Wounds, This is called A History of Geography and you can find it online at the Asian American Writers Workshop website. America is a place far away. As far as London, Australia, or Canada, any Western country where people speak English, all a page in an atlas, a place on a map, can't drive, walk, take a bus to. I want to go there, so I buy magazines, take a bureau felt pen. Draw arrows to people in the photographs and write my name on their foreheads. I want to go there, so I fuck their people. Don't care if they're good looking or turn me on or not. I let them take me, do what they want with me, even if it hurts me bad, makes me bleed, makes me bruise, sore and sad, satisfied and happy, mad, desolate. Let them do what they want with a slab of meat, because you're giving me a place I cannot get to. So I throw my legs up in the air, spread them in toilets, spread them in parks, spread them in hotel rooms, rich hotels, with real fancy sheets and bedspreads, with mint, chocolates and strawberries, by starched white pillows and fancy room service, and nice uniform bellmen and receptionists who look at me and know what I'm doing because they want to do it too, done it before. Maybe cheap, rundown hotels, a shared bathrooms, and thin walls, creaky beds, bed lice, and stinking men. But I don't care, because I'm in America, in London, in Australia, in France, and anywhere but this town.
0: What do you feel like? it is that he brings to that queer literary canon that you think is m- most vital and why he should be taught or should be read.
4: He has this uh, wonderful way of making the disgusting sublime <laughs> um, without also making it prettier than it is. He was you know, completely unabashed about his desires, the rightness or wrongness of them, there's a way in which his work reminds me a lot of of the other writer I was interested in talking about, which is David Warnerovich, who, you know, both of them were writing about addiction. Both of them were writing about anonymous sex, HIV, uh, and AIDS. And, you know, I think one thing that a lot of Asian American writers have had to deal with is this, this way in which we're treated like, we're given a minoritarian status even though we all come from these countries that are uh, in these cultures that are ancient and in some cases much larger than the U S and so I wonder sometimes if he was just uh, too far ahead of his time, even though the record he gave us of his time is invaluable. There's all these moments, that he captures in his work that I when I read them I remember uh things I haven't thought of since then
3: when you think about where sort of where we are right now with writing and with literature what do you feel like is that next step of creating that new normal either in your own work or what you see other writers doing
4: that's a good question you know i think um we're at a place where I think a lot of us are realizing that the world is is changing really rapidly. And some of it is good and some of it is not. You know, but that in some ways the limits on us were always just the limits of what we were prepared to imagine for ourselves. So I think using our imagination to deal with Crisis, that's certainly something that queer people are used to. And it's also something that writers do. Like that, it really is a, a definition of writing. <laughs> you know, the crisis is that you wanted to write something, then you wanted to mean something. Sometimes the crisis is larger than that. Sometimes the crisis is the pandemic. Sometimes the crisis is state violence. You know, Justin was writing about an America that seemed like it was eating itself alive and sending people knowingly to their deaths uh, through policies that posed as neutral bureaucratic decisions. But they were not, they were driven by ideology. They were genocidal. And that's um, that propensity, that attempt to do that now with COVID is what we're seeing. We're seeing this push to reopen for example, in a way that only harms um, people who are deemed essential workers, but what that means is that they aren't allowed not to work, which is a kind of slavery. So, yeah, we have to figure out how how to save all of us, in a sense, and I think that's the imaginative task at hand that has a lot of people really staggered at times. And so writing about that time certainly is daunting, but is also as daunting as any other time, I think.
1: In case you didn't know, Alexander is literally queer canon himself, so we definitely recommend his novels Edinburgh and The Queen of the Night and his essay collection How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. That's it for this episode and this series. Thank you so much for listening. If you've missed any of our previous episodes, be sure to catch up and get all of that queer excellence. This series was executive produced by Shana Naomi Krocmo and Carly Usden, edited by Carly Usden, and mixed by Laura Klein. Thanks to everyone at EW who contributed to the planning and interviews. David Canfield, Jared Hall, Nick Romano, and Sarah Rodman. Make sure you're following Entertainment Weekly on all of the socials at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly on Instagram and Facebook. And be sure to go to EW.com slash pride for all of Entertainment Weekly's LGBTQ coverage. And if you want a little bit more of my greatness, you can follow me on Twitter at Travel Anderson or check out my own podcast called Fanti, wherever Slayworthy audio can be found. Forever and always slay on.